You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Well, we're in the eighth week of our series where we're going verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. If you're new to Rev Church, this is your first time you're joining us online. What we like to do, you need to know this, what we like to do about 90 to 95% of the time is preach verse by verse through entire books of the Bible or through large sections of Scripture like the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, and we got a lot of Scripture to go over today. And I'm just going to tell you, it's going to be a barn burner today. If your kids are in here, get them to rev kids, uh, because uh, it is going to be uh, easy preaching, hard living, as I always tell you guys, uh, as we look at some really hard Scripture. I was uh, in church a couple months ago, and I was in the green room where the band and uh, people that serve hang out. And I overheard one of the ladies at Rev Church telling uh, the group that was in there about how she couldn't get her husband up to come to church that day. She was like, I couldn't believe it. He, he just wouldn't wake up this morning. I told him, you got to get up and you got to get ready so we can go to church. And she said her husband was just like, I don't want to go to church today. And she's like, it doesn't matter. You got to get up and get ready. Her husband said, those people don't even like me. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want to go. He finally said, give me one good reason that I should go to church. She said, well, number one, you're 43 years old, and I can't believe I'm even having to get you up to go to church. And number two, you're the pastor, and you're scheduled to preach. (laughs) It wasn't me. I talk to a lot of people, invite a lot of people to church, and I hear a lot of excuses from people as to why they won't come to church, whether they're Christians or not. For some people, it's just selfishness. It's just, I don't have the time for it, or I've got other things to do, or I'm too busy. For some people, they're just lost. They just don't want to have anything to do with God and see it as a waste of time. Some people say church is too boring. Some people say the church has gotten too political. Some people say the church is not political enough. Some people say they don't like organized religion. Some people have legitimate church hurt. They grew up in a church that spiritually abused them or physically abused them in some way. And so they literally, like walking through the doors of the church, uh, is kind of like a PTSD type deal. Like they, they have trauma from their lives from it. Some people say, I don't want to go to church because the church just wants my money. You ever heard that one before? They all revolve, really almost every excuse I hear about why people don't come to church revolves around the number one thing I hear from people in some way, shape, or form. And it's, I don't want to go to church because people in the church are too hypocritical. We can all relate to that. Because the church is full of broken people that aren't perfect. And if you're here this weekend, just keep this in mind. You don't go to a hospital looking for people that are well. They're all sick. Don't come to the church this weekend looking for perfect people because ain't none of us perfect. Amen, Rev Church. We all struggle with hypocriticalness on some level. And we've all seen it in the church and in Christianity. If you've grown up in America over the last 20, 30, 40 years, you've seen, you know, Christian celebrities, for lack of a better way of putting it, 
fall in a spectacular fashion, whether it was Jimmy Swaggart in the 80s, maybe it was Jim Baker. More recently, maybe you saw Ravi Zachariah fall or the Hillsong scandals that have took place. They've done whole documentaries on it. The church is full of people that in one way or another struggle on some level with hypocrisy. The word hypocrite is found in our passage today, Matthew 6, 1 through 18, in what I'm going to call the hypocritical teachings that Jesus gives, where Jesus addresses three pillars of what it means to be a Christian, and also these three pillars absolutely applied to Hebrew culture in biblical times. He's going to talk about hypocriticalness as it pertains to our giving, our praying, and our fasting. If you look at the word hypocrite, it occurs more than a dozen times in the book of Matthew alone. And I know I've taught you guys this before, but it comes from the Greek word hypocrite, which literally is a play actor that performed in Roman and Greek theaters. So it literally refers to the act of pretending. One historian says this about hypocrites or actors in plays at the time. Many ancient play actors aspired to be celebrities adorned by the masses. They lived for the thrill of standing ovations and the prizes and awards sometimes presented for their dramatic performances. Just like the hypocrites that Jesus refers to in our passage today that are nothing more than play actors. You know, hypocriticalness has been around since humans have been formed. And even in the Old Testament, we can see it play out. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 13, it gives us a great definition of what hypocrisy is. When God said, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. So hypocrisy for our purposes today is is pretend devotion to God. It's empty worship. It's the substitute of human authority over divine authority. The hypocrites that Jesus is referring to and using that Greek word were actors that wore masks, not just makeup. So much like the spiritual hypocrites that we're going to talk about today, it was people that pretended to be one thing, but the whole time they were something altogether different. So we got a lot of scripture today. Let's start in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 6. Everybody with me? Say, I am. Jesus starts out by laying the foundation for the three different areas that I've already told you he's going to talk about when he says this, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. The first thing he tells us in Matthew chapter six is don't be a show off Christian. Don't be a show off Christian. Everybody look at your neighbor and say, don't be a show off. I see you today. You wore your best t-shirt here to Rev Church. He's really talking about the motivation for why we do the things we do. If you remember a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 5 in our Sermon on the Mount series, in verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
Jesus here is not contradicting himself. Instead, what he's talking about is our motivation. When you do your good deeds, are you wanting people to give glory to our Father in heaven, or are you wanting people to give glory to you? He uses this phrase, be careful, which in your translation may say, take heed or watch out. And this is a present imperative. It's a word of command, in other words, that calls for constant vigilance and watchfulness. What Jesus is saying is, remember, the Sermon on the Mount is written to people that have already become Christians on how to become more Christ-like. It's not written to people on how to become a Christian. It's how to go through the sanctification process and be more Christ-like. So what he's saying is, Even the most well-intended Christians can veer into danger in the area of hypocrisy. You You can get to a place where you're in danger of practicing your righteousness for the purpose of being noticed and seen by other people. He says, don't do it to be seen by them. Again, he's saying, what is your motivation? Is it to please God or is it to please men? Is it so people will give glory to God or so that people will give glory to me? Is it so that people will give applause to God or so that people will give applause for me? And what he's saying is, if you're seeking to please men, you got no reward. An earthly goal, in other words, gets an earthly reward. People might praise you for doing your things that you do in front of them, but God is not praising you if your motivation is to get the praises from people. Makes sense to everybody? Say amen. It's already heavy in here. It's going to get even worse. Let's keep going. Y'all with me? Say I am. Look at verse 2. The first subject that he speaks about is our giving. Generous giving. Don't be hypocritical in your generosity. He says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When Jesus says, when you give to the needy, specifically the full context of this, if you understand this, he he uses a word that might be translated in your Bible, alms. When you give your alms, alms was something that was commanded in the Old Testament. And essentially, uh, it was the giving and the generosity that the people did in order to take care of poor people and people that were in need. And so what Jesus is saying is, when you're helping poor people, don't let everybody know about it. When you pay someone's light bill, don't feel the need to include that in a conversation to have someone think that you're more spiritual and you're more like Jesus. Uh, If you cut hair for a living and you cut someone's hair for free, don't go around posting on social media about how you did it for free and don't brag about it. See, the Hebrews of Jesus' day, these people that Jesus is preaching to, We're very similar to us, and it's even more amplified now that we have social media in that they were used to celebrating public and visible displays of dead religion. What they were dealing with at the time was similar to what we're dealing with today. The idea that, and you've seen this before, you've seen mega church pastors that go serve at the homeless shelter But boy, they make sure they take their film crew with them. The idea is like this. 
politicians in America today. Every time there's a hurricane, a tornado, a flood, something like that, what do they do? They jump on a plane, they go to the site where it hit, and they only stay for an hour, and they do something where it looks like they're serving, but it's just for a photo op. It's just so people think they really care when really they're just wanting to be seen by other people. Jesus says, don't do that. We're different. We don't, we're not like the philanthropists of the day that will start a foundation to help people but name it after themselves. You know, the Gates Foundation or whatever. Y'all know what I'm saying? He says, don't do that. I can remember sitting on my grandfather's front porch when he was a retired pastor. He pastored for decades and decades in Southern Baptist churches, you know, traditional Southern Baptist churches. And uh, in his churches, they would pass the plate. Y'all know what I mean when I say pass the plate? They had an offering plate that they would pass around during a point in the service. We don't do that here. We just have giving boxes and kiosks and an app you can give on. But he said that he had people in his church that he would have to correct because there were people that when the plate would be passed, they would make sure that within their offering every single week they included change so that when they gave their money in the plate, the change would hit and everybody would know they gave money. He told me about a guy who, when the plate would get to him, he would pull out a wad of cash, and it would, he would like try to make people think he was looking for the right amount, but really what he was doing was he was holding up those bills so everyone could see how much he was giving. The church has this wrong in a lot of ways. I served at Blackwater Park Baptist Church over in North Carolina. None of them watched me online, so I can say that, okay? And I can remember... We did something called a mission walk. You ever heard of this? We give you an envelope a month later. We take the money up. And the way they did their mission walk was they had everybody in the church bring their envelope and walk around the church. And they had a box up front where everybody would drop their envelope and then go back to their seat. It's crazy how the church enabled people to lose their reward. Because when the counters would go to count the offering, there was about five to ten empty envelopes. Why? Because people wanted to be seen giving even though they weren't giving anything. We've got to be diligent as a church not to enable this kind of behavior. Imagine a church having a serve day where we mobilize the church together to go help poor people, to go rake yards, to go serve people at the bread of life or something like that. And, and imagine a church encouraging you when you do that to take pictures and put them on social media and make this tag. You know what they're encouraging you to do? Lose your reward. Imagine an event where the church mobilizes together with the whole goal of feeding the poor people or helping the poor people. And every single one of the people that serves to help those people posts on social media because they want to get likes for what they're doing. The moment you do that, you lose your reward. Is everybody with me? Say amen. This is one of the reasons that I got rid of Facebook about eight to ten months ago. Y'all know I deleted my Facebook account. Because I wonder how many times I posted something on Facebook 
because I wanted y'all to see it. And I'd go back and think, how many likes did I get on it? And I lost my reward. Be very careful, very careful. Jesus is saying there's a technique that we give with. I did Brazilian jiu-jitsu for about seven or eight years. I loved it. And Brazilian jiu-jitsu is one of the main techniques that's very prevalent in what we call MMA or mixed martial arts uh, or UFC Ultimate Fighting Championship. And one of the things that I love the most is when new guys would come into the gym to learn Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, you could always tell the ones that, that knew a lot about the sport but didn't really know what they were doing because they watched a lot of UFC. They would know that's a triangle choke, that's a rear naked choke, that's an arm bar, that's a key lock, that's a joint lock, that's all these different things. They could tell you exactly what they all looked like, but then when you would spar with them or roll with them, you would destroy them. Because they had the head knowledge, but they didn't know the technique. And it was fun because we'd smash them and make them throw up, and it was great. And sorry, I'm a guy, but I love to do that. You know, teach them a lesson. Arr! So anyway, Jesus says there's a technique. You can't just know what the move is. You've got to know the technique behind it. And he's giving us the technique. The technique is, shh. Look at your neighbor and say, shh. Last week I told you there was a theme song to the sermon. It came from one of the most hated movies in American history, Frozen. Let it go, let it go, right? Somebody bake me a cake this week. That was a frozen cake, you evil people. It tasted good though. But like this week, the, the soundtrack, the theme song for the sermon is, you remember that old song, Secret Agent Man? I only know that song because of Ace Ventura, okay, y'all? But like, that's it. Secret Agent Man. Do it in secret. Everybody doesn't need to know. When you give, you're not seeking glory. You're not seeking favors from other people. Not only should our giving be marked by what 2 Corinthians tells us to do, it should be joyful, it should be regular, it should be sacrificial, but it should also be done with the right motives and attitudes. And I think I've got this for the screen. Take a picture of it if you need to, if you need to remember this. Everything doesn't need to be done so everyone will like it. Let me say it this way. I think I said it wrong. Everyone doesn't need to like everything you do for God. It's okay if it's between you and Him. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. That's the gist of every subject he talks about. Let's look at the second one, though, because he goes from giving to talking about praying. Don't be hypocritical in your praying, our powerful praying. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Um, we're not going to get in depth on this prayer. About three or four years ago, we did a sermon series called Pray Like Jesus. where we went verse by verse and broke down the Lord's Prayer. We're just going to touch on it today and give you like an outline. But if you want more in-depth teaching on that, go back and find that online. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. He says, don't pray like the hypocrites. The Pharisees had formalized, repetitive, regulated, long prayers that were meant to be on display in front of other people. Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the Pharisees. He also says, don't babble like the pagans when you pray. Don't repeat this gibberish, these chants, these things. Now, I get it. If you like memorize the Lord's Prayer, that's okay. If you if you've memorized prayers growing up and you came from a Presbyterian denomination or, or even a Catholic background or something like that, but what Jesus is saying is that's not necessary. You don't have to do that. You definitely don't have to do that in front of others. He says, do pray privately. You don't have to be seen by everybody. Secondly, he says, do pray with the outline of the Lord's Prayer in mind. Again, the Lord's Prayer is great to memorize. I played high school football, and I was completely unchurched, and our coach used to make us say the Lord's Prayer at the end of every practice, and I memorized it in high school. So it's great to memorize, but it's more of an outline. It instructs us on what our prayers should look like, and many of us are completely confused on how we're supposed to pray. So if we go through the outline of the Lord's Prayer, first he says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So here's the idea that he's unpacking in the first line. We pray to the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Does that make sense to everybody, okay? We pray to the Father, Father God, Abba Father. You hear people say, start their prayers that way. We pray to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Bible says, and we don't even know what we're supposed to pray for, the Holy Spirit will give us utterances so we exactly pray for the right things. In Jesus' name, you close your prayers always in Jesus' name. Secondly, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? We pray for God's will above everything else. If you're sick, ask God to heal you. But always back that up with, God, you know what's best and I want your will to be done. If you're broke, God, will you please bless me in some financial way? But you know what's best. I know I'm going to learn from this. So your will be done because your will is best. Next, he says, give us today our daily bread. We pray for our needs, the things that we need. If you are broke, you ask God, please provide. If if your car's broke down, you ask God, I need to get this fixed somehow. Please show me how to do it. So you pray for your needs. Next, you pray for forgiveness. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So you ask God, notice notice the way it goes. Number one, God, I know I'm a sinner and I'm broken. Please forgive me. I've done stuff I don't even know about. There's unknown stuff in my life that I've sinned with. And help me to forgive those other people. Remember last week's sermon, loving people that you don't want to love, loving difficult people. So you're praying, help me to forgive them. And then lastly, you're praying for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You're praying for protection against spiritual warfare and for protection against your flesh. Those two things. This is the outline Jesus gives us. What Jesus is saying really with all three of these areas that he's pointing out, 
but really with prayer here, is that some people go to church for the explicit reason of trying to sing louder than everyone else. It's great if you sing loud. You've seen it before. They go to church with the idea of, I'm going to pray louder than everyone else, and I'm going to speak in more Christianese than everyone. I'm going to sound like King James himself has come back to life and is praying, and even though nobody understands me, they'll think I'm super spiritual because of how loud I'm praying, how long I'm praying, and how spiritual it sounds. In other words, some people go to church with the explicit reason of making themselves the center of attention instead of Jesus. Jesus says, don't do that. It's not about you. It's about him. It's not about how good you pray or how spiritual you are. It's all about Jesus. I've taken several mission trips to Jamaica and when I say Jamaica, I don't mean a mission trip where we go to Sandals Resort. I'm talking like poor Jamaica in the mountains of Jamaica. And the first trip I ever took, I'll never forget, right next to the place where we were staying, there was like a shopping center where they had set up a truck bed and left it. And they were going to have evangelistic services there. And so they set this truck bed up and they asked us to come and preach and sing. And, you know, if you've ever been on a mission trip like that before, you know, they invite us to come out and there were all these people in this parking lot looking at this truck bed, and this preacher got up first. And in Jamaica, they're not like us. They're not like, hey, man, you better get done in an hour or I'm not coming back to church. Like, they start late, they end late, they got nothing else to do, so they hang out. They'll have five people preach. And so I'm listening to one of the first people that preach, and right next to the truck bed or the stage or the platform that he's standing on, there was a person that had a donkey with him. And about halfway through this guy's sermon, like, you think babies are bad in here? You know what I mean? Like, this donkey started flipping out. Hee-haw, hee-haw. Everybody say that with me. Hee-haw, you know what I mean? Flipping out. And I'll be honest with you, I started watching the donkey, and everybody else wasn't phased by it, but I started watching the donkey because I couldn't listen to the preacher. And I got to thinking about it later that day, and I started thinking about how that preacher didn't let that donkey affect him at all. Didn't even... Look at it, didn't acknowledge it. That donkey's over there freaking out. The guy who had it's beating it, trying to get it under control. You know, eventually the donkey left by the time I got up there because I wouldn't have been able to pay attention. In every church, in everyone's life, you're going to have donkeys that are trying to distract you. And you got to learn, Rev Church, you got to learn, whether it's in church, whether it's in your life, that you have to ignore the jackasses. This is how strong he's coming out of the box with this. Okay, y'all, y'all good? Say amen. In church services, in your life, you're going to have people that are constantly like, hee-haw, look at me, look at me. Hee-haw, look how good I pray. Hee-haw, I want to sing the solo on the platform. Hee-haw, I want to do this. Hee-haw, I'm a great teacher. Hee-haw. you got to learn how to ignore the donkey. Ignore it. you got to learn how to keep preaching and ignore it. you got to learn how to keep being a good husband 
and ignore it. You got to learn how to keep being a good wife and ignore it. You got to learn how to keep being a good parent and ignore it. You got to learn how to keep being a good child and ignore it. You got to learn how to keep following God and ignore the donkeys that are all around you, the religious people that want to make a spectacle out of God, that want all the attention on themselves and take it off of Jesus. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Is everybody with me? Say amen. Majoring on minors. Why don't we sing more hymns? I like hymns. Ain't nothing wrong with hymns, but quit sounding like a donkey. Is everybody with me? Pastor, why don't you wear more collared shirts? I'm going to get in trouble. I better stop. Charles Spurgeon once said this. I think I've got it for the screen. Sincerity makes the very least person to be of more value than the most talented hypocrite. Does that describe Christianity in America today? One theologian says this about these verses. It's a sad thing to be a Christian. Listen to this. To be a Christian at the church, a heathen at the lake, and full of the devil in your own house. Now, we've talked about so many times and Sermon on the Mount. Again, easy preaching, hard living, right, y'all? The real testimony doesn't come from what people in this room say about you. Because everybody in here, y'all are good folks. We're in the buckle of the Bible Belt, Revolution Church off Genesis Road in Crossville, Tennessee. Genesis, Cross, Revolution Church. You know, how much more Bible Belt can you get than that, right? Y'all know how to walk around here and be like, bless you, you know? Somebody sneeze, I don't know, you know what I mean? Nobody's cussing anybody out in the foyer. The real testimony that speaks to you is what your kids say about you when you're at home. What your spouse says about you when you're at home. This is what Jesus is talking about. He closes this passage by talking about fasting. The third subject is faithful fasting. Don't be a hypocrite when you fast. He says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You get the idea here? Get the idea? You do it in secret, God sees it. And that's the only person that needs to see it. Jesus is not denouncing fasting as a whole here. He's denouncing a legalistic style of fasting that draws attention to oneself. In fact, he's affirming fasting in the sense that proper fasting has extreme value in the Christian life. It should be a normal part of the Christian life. When you don't have answers and don't know what to do, it's a good idea for you to fast and ask God. When you're not sure where to put your focus, fasting puts your focus in the right place on Jesus. When you're in the middle of mourning and grief, fasting can be a tool that God gives you to 
comfort you. Fasting, in fact, according to Jesus, has the power to do things that nothing else has the power to do. In Matthew chapter 17, there's a story of a little boy that came to Jesus that was demon-possessed, and the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. And they said, why couldn't we do it? And Jesus was quoted as saying, these only come out through prayer and fasting. So what Jesus is saying is, once again, when you fast, don't feel the need to tell anyone about it. Keep it between you and God. You get the idea here. Of all the issues that Jesus preached on and spoke about, nothing thinned the herd, so to speak, and made people walk away from Jesus like when he talked about hypocrisy. Commitment to God. Much like the church today, I'm sure when Jesus talked about grace and God will forgive you and throw your stones down, you haven't sinned. People love that stuff. But boy, when he starts hitting us in between the eyes and reading our mail and reading our email and reading our Facebook messages and reading our text messages about hypocrisy, it gets us all out of whack, you know? In the church today, this is the most tension-filled subject. You know, when I preach on giving or I preach on sexual purity or I preach on anything like that, that is your thing that kind of makes you mad and you go, I don't know, I can't believe Josh said it this way or I can't believe it. It all comes down to hypocrisy. It all comes down to saying we believe this book and really living what we believe. Jesus is saying he's looking for, and I think I've got these for the screen. I've said it in several different ways. He's looking for piety without pageantry, devotion without display, holiness without hypocriticalness, sanctification without spectacle, faith without flaunting. Ray Steadman says this, and I think it's very appropriate for this passage. He said, you can operate your business without Christ. You can make it run well. You can raise your family without Christ. You can even pastor a church without Christ. But if you do, you will find that there will be no fruit, no Christ-likeness, no manifestation of that beautiful character which arrests the attention of others. Instead, there will be a sham, a phony imitation of the real thing which will drive people away from Christ and will produce nothing but a dull, mechanical religiosity. I'll close with this. I heard about a zoo in America, and I'm assuming that this story is true, uh, but who knows what's true anymore. Amen, y'all, like when you read it. It was on like a news website, but a real one. It looked like it at least. But there was a zoo that was having a huge event one Saturday, and the Thursday before the event, the centerpiece of the event that it was all planned around, which was the gorilla that they had in captivity, died the Thursday before. And so the people that planned the event said, man, what do we do? We've got this huge fundraiser coming up. We don't know what to do. Let's not announce that the gorilla died yet. Instead, let's buy a gorilla costume that looks real and let's stick somebody in it in the enclosure because the people will be so far away that probably wouldn't be able to tell anyway, and then we can announce it next week. Well, that's what they did. They got a gorilla costume, and some of them look really real. 
And a guy in the gorilla costume was doing the best he could to act like a gorilla. Well, directly next to the gorilla enclosure was the lion enclosure. And somehow, some way, this guy ended up accidentally going into or falling into the enclosure where the lions are, and they had to save him. He didn't die or nothing, but they had to save him, okay? Listen to me, Rev Church. If this sermon hits you today, this is a warning. If you run around in your life trying to act like a gorilla, trying to act like you're a Christian, trying to act like you love Jesus, but on the inside, you're not a gorilla. You don't really love Jesus. There's no evidence whatsoever that you really love Jesus. You're in danger of falling into the pit of lions. You're in danger of your life being destroyed. We all struggle with hypocrisy on some level. This will convict all of us. I get that. But some of you guys are about to fall into the pit of lions. And you need to repent. You need to turn to God. And you need to live a life of authenticity. What did I say? You don't go to a hospital looking for people that are well. It's full of sick people. Don't come to church looking for perfect people. We're all jacked up. We're all broken. None of us are perfect. Recognize that. I'm not saying be a victim. I'm not saying live unwisely, but I'm saying live with a recognition of who you are and be real with other people. We're all broken sinners. Mark Twain once said, we're all like the moon. We have a dark side that we don't want anyone to see. Isn't that true? Especially when we're around church people, especially when we're talking to the pastor, especially when it comes to our walk with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. I thank you for every single person that is under the sound of my voice, and we thank you for your word. God, uh, this is a hard sermon. And I just pray for myself, God. And in the areas that you convict me, I would do my best to not be hypocritical. Not put on a mask. It's a sermon for preachers. So easy to come up here and put a show on and perform and not be authentic and preach from the overflow as we put it of our lives. So God, help me to be real. Help me not to, not to be a, a pastor that works people, but a pastor that wants glory to be put on Jesus, wants to make Jesus famous. I pray for the people in here that you know, you've spoken to clearly. They, they had something pop in their head during this sermon. Maybe they even dismissed it quickly. But God, you're dealing with people in this room on, you say you love me, but you haven't given this thing up. This is more important than me. Your priorities aren't straight. You're you're living in some way a hypocritical life. I pray for those people in here, God, that think they know you. They've been fooled by dead religion. They've been fooled by a form of American Christianity that says, hey, punch the time clock and come to church for an hour or two a week, and you're a Christian and you're going to heaven. Nowhere did you ever say that. 
I pray for those in here that maybe don't know you, that, that they meet you real soon, that they repent of their sins, truly turn to you and submit everything to you, and that you would heal them, that you would give them freedom in their mind, in their physical body, and in their life. And that sometime in the very near future, after they work through all their junk, that they can live a life of fulfillment for you. We love you, Lord. You are awesome and you are mighty. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.